Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. I've said many times on this podcast that the road into pathology and lab medicine is often not a straight line. And for many of us, even once you get into your career, it's often not a straight line as you discover other opportunities and interests. Today, my guest is pathologist assistant, Diane Spicer. Diane's career as a PA has been anything but ordinary, and we're going to talk about how she got involved in authoring three books, how she became the curator of a congenital heart archive, and how she became involved in a webinar series. Now, here's Diane Spicer. It's nice to speak to an, another fellow pathologist assistant. It's been a while since I've had another on, so this this will be fun. I want to start way back in college for you. Uh, you initially studied molecular biology, and I'd like to know at, at the time, like what was your what was your thinking on that? Where did you want to go in that field? Uh, really, at the time, I wasn't sure. When I was in high school, I had an advanced bi biology course where we did a lot of dissections, you know, all the way from the worm, the frog, all the way up to fetal pigs. And that really just, it was awesome for me. And so my mother was a registered nurse and I talked to the pathologist at her hospital, knowing that I kind of wanted to go in that direction. But, you know, back in 1977, the AAPA wasn't out there very much and there were only a couple programs and right. even that pathologist didn't know about path assistance. So I kind of went to college knowing what I wanted to do, but not knowing how to do it. And I did research while I was in college, you know, for credits. And, you know, that way I was what, what kind of research was this? Uh, it was uh, in an orthopedic lab for bone tumors. And they we did things with mice. And so I was trained already before I graduated to do animal studies and to do um, tissue culture studies, you know, growth studies and that kind of thing. So okay. when I graduated, I got a job in the department of pathology in the medical school at the university of pittsburgh where i went to college and doing research with rats in uh, tissue culture growth studies uh, using all of the barbituric acids <laughs> so okay that's where i started that got me to the adult morgue where i had to incinerate my rats uh, after they were sacrificed and I saw people doing what I wanted to do. And at that point in time in Pittsburgh, all of the path assistants were on the job trained, which I am on the job trained. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so am I. Oh, well, that's great. And so I started asking people, you know, how, how did you get here? How did you get to do what you're doing? And they told me to watch the boards around the university for positions opening up. And that's exactly what I did. And there was a weekend position for a deaner um, at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, and they hired me. Uh, apparently, I was very enthusiastic at my interview. And two weeks later, before I even started that position, I was called by the path assistant who interviewed me. And she said, I got accepted to medical school. Would you like to interview for my job? Oh, wow. And yeah, I mean, I was definitely in the right place at the right time. And so I interviewed. They interviewed no one else. They hired me 
on the spot, and that's where it all started. I have been so fortunate to have worked at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh because that got me going. You know, that's that's funny. I have a similar I had a similar similar thing happen to me as far as being in the right place at the right time because I was a, a histotech and you know working with we had a program trained PA and she uh, you know she was teaching me how to grow some biopsies and smaller things like that and eventually she she left she took a, a different job somewhere else and so the pathologist because they saw that I was interested pretty much just kind of gave me her job uh, while they were looking for it to to add another PA. So it was just because I happened to be there, I just I just got the job. It's kind of similar to what you were saying. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. It's it's something to be said for, you know, making yourself open to those uh possibilities and then when they come up to grab them. Right, right. I mean I, I think there's there's a job for all of us out there, no matter if you're a lawyer or a doctor or a path assistant. And I think that I I was sent to a children's hospital because of, you know, how I've progressed throughout my career, uh, because that's where I was supposed to be. So Sure. Yeah, it definitely seems that way, uh, considering what the, the rest of the things you've done throughout your career. At what point did you become interested then in cardiac pathology? Well, at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, well, at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, I should say, Dr. Sherman, who I only met a few times because he was long retired, started a cardiac museum, if you will. And now at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, they have over 2,800 specimens. So it was one of the larger collections uh, when I started in 1982, and it still remains one of the larger collections. And because of that, the pathologists who were there at the time were very keen on uh, the path assistants getting involved with research, and and that was you know the the obvious course to take and. Bill Devine, who was uh, the other path assistant I worked with there, Mm -hmm. uh, helped train me. He is an awesome cardiac morphologist as well. And he has since retired, you know, three or four years ago now, but he still participates in teaching at the University of Pittsburgh. And then Robert Anderson, who is a world-renowned cardiac morphologist, started coming to Pittsburgh, I think, in the late 70s to... Uh, access the collection because it was one of the larger uh, in the world. And he would come every single year from anywhere from two to six or eight weeks, bring his whole family to Pittsburgh, and he would just get really involved with the collection, and he involved us as well. And so that's kind of where that all started. And uh, 39 years later, I'm still working with him. Right. Yeah. We're going to talk quite a bit about how you're working with Dr. Anderson uh, a little bit later on, because, yeah, you're still you still are to this day working with him. Correct. Right. Okay. And then as far as the the fetal and pediatric pathology. Now, I know you said that you were kind of doing some of that from from the very beginning, but it it seems like you're kind of you, you kind of specialized in that for a while. And at what point did you think, you know, this is this is the really the area that I want to focus on? Well, when when you're at the Children's Hospital to begin with, you're you're obviously doing complex pediatric autopsies. And sure. okay. 
you know, so I was adequately trained in how to recognize, you know, phenotypic feature, features in, you know, both the out, external description and, and internal and, you know, put all those things together. So it just translated very well to the fetal end of the spectrum. And I didn't really do a lot of fetal autopsy pathology until I moved to Tampa in 1991 okay. uh, and worked at Tampa General Hospital. And that's where I uh, started, I met and started working with Dr. Enid Gilbert Barnes, who was another well-known pediatric pathologist. She edited the Potter's uh, pathology of the fetus and infant and child uh, several, several times. Uh, which I, I helped her with some of those, uh, chapters. And so she really kind of pushed the envelope with the fetal stuff. And, you know, it's just a, a smaller translation of a pediatric autopsy. So I just really love doing the tiny dissections. And in the fetal cases, sometimes we knew nothing about them. So they were total unknowns and it, it was just, exciting and challenging to to try to get a good diagnosis for the clinician and the parents so that they could make better childbearing uh decisions for the future and i don't know i just uh, i just really think it's one way that i can be helpful on a clinical basis um uh-huh. to the parents and the physicians and even the echo techs because retrospectively now in dilation evacuation specimens I can show, show them and tell them things that I found that they might not have seen, and they can go back and review the echo and look for that particular abnormality and learn for the next time they might see it. So it really helps all the way around to kind of have a team with the maternal fetal medicine people, the pathology, the echo people, and the cardiologists so that these patients can make better decisions uh, going forward for their childbearing decisions. A hospital I used to work at, they had these kind of every other month perinatal conferences where we would, the pathology would get together with radiology and, you know, the, the uh, OBGYN people and, and things like that. And they would have these conferences and they would discuss certain cases. And you mentioned, you know, kind of circling back with the echo text. Did you have that kind of conference sort of things where you would discuss cases like that? Is that is we, that how you would learn or that how you would teach them? Right, we did, and um, it was called Fetal Board, and okay. we they presented interesting cases that we might eventually get. They presented cases that were either terminated or uh, fetal death in utero or live born, and then had autopsy. And they would have um, the maternal fetal medicine people there, the geneticists, the cardiologists. If it was like a diaphragmatic hernia, they would have those surgeons there. It would be a total compilation of anybody who might be involved in taking care of these patients uh, after birth or even if they decided to send them somewhere for interventional procedures. So it was a very interesting, fun conference to go to with input from every medical modality that needed to be involved. So it was very interesting and a good learning experience for everybody. Yeah, I bet. I mean, I, I remember I always found those to be like you, you realized you were part of a larger chain of events. And exactly. it was, 
Yeah, and it was it was very satisfying to know that the information you provided uh, in the autopsy report uh, affected so many other areas. I feel exactly the same way. And, you know, when people say, how can you do what you do? Um, yeah. I, I just explained to them just what we talked about, how it is really helpful. And it's not just, you know, crazy people in the basement. <laughs> like some people. Like some people think of us, you know, I mean, we, we don't always get a good rap. And when you explain it to people that way, how we can benefit the parents, the physicians, the echo techs, everybody can learn from it. They they like kind of stop and look at me and say, wow, I never thought about it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Now, you mentioned already uh, Dr. Enid Gilbert Barnes, and you co-authored two books with her. But the one that I want to talk about, because it helped me out a lot, the, the Handbook of Pediatric Autopsy Pathology. Um, and I actually have my copy right in front of me right now. I have the, I have the first edition of the book. Well, um, you should buy the second edition because it's it's awesome. It's way better than the first edition. Oh, all right. I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Okay. All right. I, I kind of want to hear the story of how this book came to be. What was like the initial idea or the initial conversation about this? Well, it was Dr. Bardess's idea, and having had edited the pathology uh, of the fetus and infant from Potter's, she said, we need to do something that's a bit more focused and a bit more instructive, and we have so many good cases and so many good pictures, and so she just kind of got the ball rolling, and we discussed, you know, chapters and what we wanted to include, and uh, all that type of thing. And, and we just kind of got started. It took us a couple years to get it done because it was just her and I at that point. And now the second edition, we added Dr. Thora Stephenson, who I currently work with at Tampa General. And she was a, did her two-year fellowship with Dr. Gilbert Barnes, and then was hired on uh, by Tampa General after Dr. Gilbert Barnes retired. So it was just... Um, an easy decision to include her on the second edition, because then if we decided to do something uh, going forward, then she would be, you know, the pathologist uh, on the the authorship along with me. So it, I see. it okay. just kind of came out of, you know, this this book might be needed out there. And that's that's kind of how it started. So what was your role as, as, uh, in, in compiling the book? Like were you, re you mostly the pictures or did you do some of the writing or, or, or what? Um, yeah, I, I wrote the autopsy chapter and some of the cardiology stuff and the embryo examination chapter. Mm, okay. um, and you know, I, I edited everything for her going forward and helped with the references, which is actually the largest, <laughs> I don't even know what I want to call it, most annoying job to get oh, all the sure. references found and uh, make sure they're correct and in the right spot. And that was just the biggest job. And, and actually, most of my images uh, are in the book. And, um, you know, now, now I'm very proud of my images, especially those that are in the second edition because they're all in color and some oh. of the illustrations I did as well. Okay. Uh, those are definitely the, the strong, I, I, in my opinion, the strong point of the book are the illustrations and the images because there's, first of all, there's so many of them. And secondly, they're very, uh, they're very detailed. 
and annotated and things like that. So, that, so I found I found them very helpful. Well, that's great. I'm. I hope that uh, anybody who has has used the the book also finds it helpful. We are entertaining the idea of doing a much more bench friendly uh, version uh, with much more instruction and not so much pediatric stuff, but more fetal uh, and embryo stuff. So oh, okay. that it would be more accessible at the bench. But we just are both so incredibly busy right now, Dr. Stephenson and I, that we just haven't been able to get around to it. We are saving things in folders and um, mm-hmm. in anticipation of, of getting to it. So hopefully we will. I see. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> that, 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 that would be great to see. We'll get back to our interview with Diane Spicer right after this. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Dress Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Ahmed by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. And now back to Diane Spicer on the People of Pathology podcast. What about the Van Mirop Congenital Heart Archive at the University of Florida? Can you tell me how you got involved with that? Well, that again goes way back to my time in Pittsburgh. So uh, Dr. Jay Fricker was a cardiologist or actually, yeah, he was a cardiologist and a fellow uh, in Pittsburgh when I worked there. And we worked, Bill Devine and I worked quite closely with the cardiologists uh, on the cases that were autopsied and presented at M&Ms and uh, other clinical conferences. And so I knew him from Pittsburgh. He moved to Florida to be the chairman of pediatric cardiology in 1994, 1995. I moved here in 91. And so we started running into each other at cardiology conferences around the state. And he said, hey, can you come up here and get this collection organized? It's all in the basement in big Tupperware containers, you know, one with VSDs, one with common arterial trunks one with ASDs, that type of thing. And so we worked on it, I think, between 2004 and 2005. And I I went up there as a uh, part-time employee periodically and got that collection cataloged and, and organized. So everything has its own jar, or mostly everything now has its own jar. And there was a huge paraffinized component to the collection so that now when I'm not available to teach the fellows with the, the wet hearts, they can grab a box and look at the, the plastinated hearts without gloves, and they have the adequate diagnosis uh, in with on a piece of paper in each box. And so it's been very helpful uh, for teaching the nurses and the fellows. And we used to run pretty uh, consistent quarterly courses, um, but secondary to covid all of that stuff has has now ceased, and um, you know it, it was just a good opportunity for me to go and work with congenital heart disease again. Did you do any of the plastination plastinization yourself, or was that done 
by someone else. No, that was all done by Dr. Van Mirop and Dr. Donnelly, who was the pediatric pathologist at that time up there. They were were both very invested in trying to get some of these defects plastinated. I have probably a few hundred of them, and several of them were kind of stagnated in the middle of the plastinating process. So I've had to kind of let them just dry out a bit because they were a bit sticky Mm -hmm. because not many people do it uh, around the nation. And cost-wise, it was hard for the university to send me anywhere to get those finished. But they are becoming very nice specimens even so. Let's get back to, uh, you mentioned Dr. Robert Anderson a little bit earlier, and you've, you've stated he's, he's your mentor, and you said how you, you kind of met him. How did the two of you keep in touch over the years? And then now you're working with him more closely now. How did that happen? Well, as you know, back in the 80s, we didn't have, um, we didn't have the internet or computers. Right. So <laughs> back then, he would leave us with projects, and we would send our data via regular U.S. mail to London, and he would send his comments back. So by the time he got back in the following year, it took us quite a while to get through one project. And then we would finalize it when he was back in Pittsburgh in person. And I moved to Florida in 1991. He continued to go to Pittsburgh, I think, until the mid-late 90s. And then that that association kind of dried up a bit. and then. He started coming back to St. Petersburg to the All Children's Hospital, which is now Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital, to do a February conference with them. And I had had some input at the All Children's Hospital in St. Pete uh, with uh, one of the pathologists I knew there. And then I ended up uh, getting back together with uh, Dr. Anderson when he started coming to St. Pete uh, in 2001, maybe 2000. So there was a period where we didn't work a lot together uh, in the mid-90s, mid-late 90s. But then since 2001, we've been at it ever since. Uh, I would do the conference with them every February in St. Pete, and we have just ramped things up as the years have gone by. Uh, We also have been instrumental in cataloging and organizing the collection at the Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. And we would go there every year together in the fall since 2010. And I would go there two or three times a year on my own uh, to help with that collection and get it photographed and continue to organize it. But since COVID, uh, we haven't been to Chicago for quite a while. So it, it just has really been an awesome thing for me to have the association with him uh, and to get all the work done that I've gotten done. And now I just started a position at the Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital uh, with cardiovascular uh, surgery, uh, and I'm tasked to catalog their collection that they have there. It's just kind of here and there right now. I know what's there because I've used it to teach at those February conferences, but we'll get it organized and they're hoping that I can help them develop a better academic program for their fellows and their cardiologists. Uh, So I'm very happy 
to have that position. It's 20 hours a week, uh, but it's keeping me really busy. So, and I know you've, you're kind of contracted with a, isn't there another children's hospital in Denver? I think it was that you do kind of the same sort of thing. I, I did years and years ago, but oh, okay. that, um, that was maybe for a five or six year period between like 2006 and 2010, 2005, somewhere around there. But I did go there for uh, several years in a row to do some teaching and all of most of their collection now is uh, plastinated or paraffinized. I think paraffinized. And I think they have a pathologist now who trained in Pittsburgh who is uh, starting a wet collection as well. So now with Dr. Anderson, you're you're collaborating with him on a, a webinar series for the Congenital Heart Academy. And first of all, can we kind of talk about what is the Congenital Heart Academy? And then how did you get involved with this particular project? Uh, the Congenital Heart Academy is a free worldwide educational system. And they don't just do webinars on congenital heart morphology. They do webinars on echo, cardiography, clinical cardiology, uh, any number of things related to pediatric cardiology. And they offer these uh, multiple times during the week. I think every day of the week, I'm not quite sure what the other things are scheduled for, but I know ours are at uh, nine o'clock in the morning on Fridays. And Dr. Anderson has uh, picked the topics that will present, and I just try and find the specimens to match uh, what what we're going to present that day. And we record them, and the uh, didactic PowerPoint information is is kind of meshed with the gross demonstration of the specimens that I videoed ahead of time. So I'm I'm currently getting set to video tomorrow. Uh, for next week's presentation. Uh, and I think that you can find all of these videos on YouTube under the Congenital Heart Academy. Yes, and, you can. Yeah, and if you, I'm not sure how you get an invitation to attend, but I, I probably should have asked that question prior to this call, but I'm sure you can somehow log on to their website and get an invitation to attend the, the Zoom or get a Zoom invitation uh, for whatever meeting you would like to attend, whether it be a clinical or echo or uh, cardiac morphology uh, session. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll see if I can find that out. I'll put a link in the show notes to that. And, and I'll definitely put put a link to the YouTube channel as well. Uh, like you said, there's the one that you do every Friday, and there are there's a lot of other ones too. So it's, it's really interesting stuff. I, I watched a, a lot of them. Yeah, I know there are, are a number of uh, people who are doing this type of thing just secondary to COVID and to get the worldwide education out there. Right, and it yeah. Actually, it actually is a very good mode for those who don't have access to this, you know, in the remote parts of India, for instance, or other remote parts around the world. But if they have Internet access, they can still get this type of education. And, and at no charge. So it, it's actually doing a service to a lot of people who are out there around the world to educate them. That's a very good point. I didn't actually think of that. Yeah, that it could be worldwide and you could you can get it from anywhere. 
that has an internet connection. Correct. That's great. Yeah. Okay. There's also another learning center, the Pediatric Cardiac Learning Center, that's run out of the Children's Hospital of Cincinnati. Uh, and a young cardiologist I work with, Justin Treader, uh, helps to manage that. So it's another good free site for education. Uh, I hope to have a few videos uploaded there in the next uh, month or so, uh, both normal and some congenital malformations. So it's just another good site to log on to at no charge uh, for good uh, education. Okay. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll include that one also. Something you've written up, you've co-authored a couple of papers with Dr. Anderson about the topic of the attitudinal orientation of the heart. So let's let's talk about that. What is first of all, what is that in, uh, you know, as opposed to what's often called the Valentine orientation? Well, the medical schools always look at the specimens intact in the body first before. They take it out to look at the cardiac structures on their own. And all the old textbooks always show the heart with its apex pointing down. And actually, that's where we got the right and the left ventricle. And that's where you get the anterior descending and the posterior descending coronary arteries. And when you think about it, the posterior descending coronary artery actually lies on the diaphragm. So it's not posterior, but inferior when it's in the chest. So we are now with all of the new uh, imaging modalities like CT, MRI, people are looking at the hearts as they lie in the body. And in the past, the Papillary muscles are even named incorrectly. And when you look at the heart in the body, those papillary muscles aren't in the same position as they would be when you take it out and put it in the Valentine position. Same for what people used to call the subustation sinus. If you have the heart in the Valentine position with the apex down, that sinus where but just behind the coronary sinus is subustation. But if you put it in the um, attitudinally appropriate position, the subustation sinus is no longer subustation, but subthabesian. So it, it just really changes some of the anatomic names when you put the heart as it lies in the chest and look at it like that, so that the right ventricle was actually the anterior ventricle. So attitudinally appropriate nomenclature is much more consistent with the way we look at things with imaging these days and and much more clinically consistent between pathology and clinical uh, nomenclature. And even though people were taught in medical school those structures by looking at the heart once it's removed from the chest, we're trying to promote changing this and You know, we look at the heart as it lies in the chest at this point in time. And actually, we always did uh, where the way I was brought up anyhow. Okay, so and that's why so that you can correlate with the with the imaging. Is that the is that the point of, of doing it that way? Yeah. And and just looking at I mean, the role of anatomy is 
that you should look at things the way they lie in the body. But with the heart, it's pretty much the only organ where that rule is not followed or has not been followed over the years and years and years of teaching. So what kind of, uh, like, you know, you've written these papers and you've, you've talked uh, in different places about this. What Has there been any sort of acceptance of this? Are people open to the idea like, yeah, that actually makes a lot more sense? Um, yeah, people do say that. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. But they're not always willing to cognitively change their nomenclature. You know, as they still, as they present things, they still use posterior descending coronary artery and, and those types of things. So it, it's, it's going to be a long time. It's not going to change overnight. And we realize that, but you know, it's, it's good to keep it out there and, and have the younger students as they come up, hopefully adopt the correct anatomic terms with their correct anatomic positions. Would this have any implications as far as like grossing or autopsy procedure? Would it change the way that we would dissect a heart? Well, if it, pediatric wise, we always open the heart in situ. So as it lies in the body, I mean, I always photograph my things in attitudinally appropriate uh, fashion. So as it lies in the body, that's how I photograph uh, things. And it actually has been easy for me to adopt that because I have opportunity to look at a lot of uh, echoes and and CTs and MRIs. So it's just kind of natural and, and probably being brought up under someone teaching cardiac morphology that has gotten me in that line of thinking for a long, long time. I'm not sure if it would change the way people gross things because you're still going to look at the segmental connections and the morphologic characteristics. But I think if, if you're cognizant of how the heart lies in the chest, I mean, your terms may, may need to change. For most pathologist assistants, you know, they spend pretty much most of their careers in the gross room, just grossing, you know, surgical specimens. Right. And one of the reasons that I wanted to talk with you is your career is, it seems like a little bit more unique in that you've really specialized in cardiac and, and, and fetal pediatric pathology. Do you think there are other areas that a, that a PA could specialize like that? Uh, sure. I think you, if, if you're in the right place with the right support from your pathologist, uh, I know people who have uh, interest in GI pathology, people who have interest in forensic pathology, and if if they can get into the right position, sure you can you can become whatever you want, uh, whatever you seek out. I think, and it helps to have the support of the pathologist you work for or work with, because I know in Pittsburgh the pathologists that were there when I started, uh, Ed Eunice, Ron Jaffe, Yoshi Hashida, and Jeff Hubbard, they all pushed us to find something that we were passionate about. And they pushed us to become members of the AAPA, uh, even though we're, we were on the job trained. And they just pushed us to try to, to be better pathologist assistants. So if you have the motivation and the pathologists you work with have that motivation, I think anything is possible. Like we said earlier, it's a matter of, you know, first of all, having that interest 
and then w- when you get those opportunities to to see where they go and to you know kind of follow them kind of in the way that you did diane this has been great it's been really really interesting to kind of go back and sort of look to look back through your career and how you got to where you are so i i really appreciate you being here today well i appreciate you having me i hope it was uh helpful yeah. and i hope it's helpful to anyone else who might be listening uh, especially yeah. to those young people out there who are deciding what they might want to do because medical school isn't always for everybody. And I regretted not going for a while. Um, but now I don't because I would have to be sitting behind a microscope every day. And that's not me. Uh, I need to do the hands-on work. I love the hands-on work and I let anybody shadow me whenever they have an interest and uh, that's actually one way to give back if you can help somebody say no I don't want to do this or yes I do want to try to do this so I'm just glad I'm a path assistant and able to still do the hands-on work that I love great big thanks to Diane Spicer here's a preview of the next episode with veterinary pathologist Dr. Alexandra Zuroff after this experience what where, where did you go from there so I spent over two years, two and a half years at the company. And at some point, um, I wanted to move on to learn more pathology and not just do the digital part of pathology. Okay. Um, with, so I moved to um, Charles River Laboratories, where I became a toxicologic pathologist. And I was actually a little bit afraid that this digital pathology um, component is going to go away. And because uh, the new job was in Canada, I had to wait a little bit to have my uh, documents all uh, processed. So in the meantime, it was a couple of months in between the jobs, I started my blog. The blog um, called, it was called Digital Pathology Consulting at the beginning, then the name changed to Digital Pathology Place. And this was to keep me attached to the digital pathology part of pathology. Because I was kind of afraid that, okay, I'm going to join the largest CRO for ToxPath, the Logic Pathology, and I don't know how very much digital pathology friendly they are. So how about I just have this anchor and keep uh, developing myself in this area and also providing value to people who might find it useful. You know, one thing I want to point out about this conversation with Diane Spicer is she took the standard career of a pathologist assistant and then discovered these areas within it that she was really passionate about and that she really enjoyed. And then she explored those areas and that led to these other projects and opportunities that she may not have found otherwise. I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today. As always, you can follow the show on Twitter at People of Path or connect with me on LinkedIn. One other thing I want to mention, uh, this coming Friday, I'll be participating in a a roundtable discussion put on by the Pathologist magazine. It's called The Pandemic One Year On, and we're recording that March 26th. I believe that will go live sometime in April, so I'm looking forward to that. If you enjoyed this episode and you think you know someone who might get something out of it, please share it with them, and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening. And I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. Mm -hmm.